It's time for the Bible Geek. I am that geek. Robert M. Price, Robert M. Price, postmodern deconstruct super powered demigod. This is Bob Price, the Bible Geek. Uh, before I get into questions about the, the Bible, I uh, want to register my uh, great sadness at the news of the passing of the great, great Leonard Nimoy, a bit of a resurrected savior himself uh, from Star Trek. Uh, what a what an actor, what a character, just really amazing. And uh, um, just uh, happened and uh, hard to get over. But uh, let's uh, let's go on to some Bible questions, though there are plenty of them, and uh, let's uh, see here. Uh, I'm sorry, I haven't been here doing them that much lately because I've been working furiously on uh, my new book, Holy Fable: The Bible Undistorted by faith and uh, I'm really enjoying working on it. I think you're really going to get a kick out of uh, reading it. It's, uh, it's really a lot of fun. Okay. Uh here's here's one from Norm. Uh well, a couple from him actually, which is good. I know young earth creationists say the world is about 6,000 years old. If I remember correctly, this derives from someone called Archbishop Usher who supposedly counted and added up all the ages of Adam, Eve, Seth, Noah, Abraham, etc., to determine that the world was created in 4004 B.C. So, adding 4004 uh, plus 2014 uh, C.E., we get an age of 6,018 years. However, the Jewish calendar, which I believe also uses Old Testament chronology, it lists the current year at uh, 5775. Uh, do you know how the Jews came to this number? Am I correct in my description of Usher's method? Um, do you have any idea why there's a discrepancy of 243 years? I'm afraid I do not. Uh, that's, uh, that is a, a tough one. Uh, I welcome anybody else's um, erudition on this since I ain't got any but uh, Bishop Usher I think he became an archbishop later not that that matters much but Bishop Usher did come up with this date in the manner you uh, mentioned he he figured well look we happen to have pretty strict specific data of lifespans and so on for uh, the, the whole uh, range of the Bible characters, and if it's accurate, and of course he thought it was, that should give us this number. And uh, I don't think there are gaps. I don't think he had to wing it. It uh, works pretty well, but of course that's, uh, that's not... Uh, really the i mean you know there's just no way to accept that if you know a thing about science but it was a pretty clever maneuver and um of course it didn't seem as stupid then as it does now and uh 
these people were intelligent. If he, if the bishop were not, he couldn't have come up with this. Even though, of course, it's uh, it's just fantasy. But I, I would guess that uh, what he did was to at least construct the chronology the Bible writers did have in mind. So that's an achievement. By the way, he didn't have the uh, the exact uh, time and day of the week and uh, and what month it was. I think it was like nine a.m. October something or other. That was a subsequent writer. I, I forget how he managed to fine-tune it that way, but Bishop Usher, as embarrassing as his theory now seems, uh, at least didn't go that far. Okay, Norm also asks, do any of the extant apocryphal Gospels use Mark and or Q as source materials the way the canonical synoptics do? If so, would this shed any light on the synoptic problem and help resolve doubts about Mark and priority of the two-source hypothesis? If not, do you think the Church Fathers deliberately included all of the extant synoptic Gospels in the canon? Regardless of whether or not it was deliberate, it sure makes redaction criticism easier. Uh, that is an interesting one. I suppose the uh, there are similar theories... I should say similar questions that come up, not exactly what what you're asking, which, you know, I think the answer is probably no uh, to, but uh, it's still a good question and does shed a bit of light on the exclusion of the uh, Jewish Christian Gospels, the Gospel according to the Hebrews, the Gospel according to the Nazareans, and the Gospel according to the Ebionites, all of which may well have been... uh, different recensions of Matthew, uh, and uh, conceivably earlier, though there's no way to know. But they they do uh, appear to be uh, versions of Matthew, and, uh, and, and therefore they, uh, they've sort of inherited the Matthean use of Mark and Q. Um... Uh, let's see, and uh, where this gets even more interesting, though, is the question, as I think Paul Cushot, uh raised many, many years ago, is Marcion's gospel one of the synoptics? Uh, he has a fascinating essay on uh, how it, it complicates the source-critical question if the Marcionite gospel was not just a, a kind of proto-Luke, but uh, something a bit more fundamental and shorter than that, and he factors it in, and uh, it, although I, I must confess I can't quite remember now what his theory was, but that would be worth looking up. Maybe if I remember past the end of this particular podcast, I'll look it up. But uh, he thought that, yeah, there, uh, that this gospel, which we don't possess anymore, but we can kind of infer what was in it from citations of it by many church fathers, this, he thought, put the, the whole synoptic thing in a bit of a different light. The Gospel of Thomas raises similar questions because um, there's the big issue of whether it is ident- to be identified with a, a Q-like collection of sayings or if it was a uh, another version of Q, a kind of cus- uh, cousin of Q. Is it, as some people 
speak, I think I've got this right, of a Z document, uh, an earlier version uh, of a collection of sayings of Jesus that then became, uh, by expansion, uh, the Gospel of Thomas on the one hand and Q on the other. I tend not to go along with this because it reads more naturally to me, Thomas does, as a uh, a collection of uh, wisdom Christology sayings, perhaps the work of the compiler of, of uh, Thomas, who knows, though, maybe a source that he used, uh, and uh, some uh, probably independent traditions of sayings attributed to Jesus, like the great saying about the uh, the uh, jar of meal, um, plus memory quotes of the, the synoptics that the compiler had heard in church, but didn't, but he didn't have a copy to work from. Uh, and so uh, I tend not to think Thomas represents an earlier synoptic-like uh, story, uh, source. Even if it did, I, uh, I don't think it would uh, be a source used by um the, our New Testament Gospels, but there is some reason to think that it was known to Tatian or whoever it was, might not have been Tatian, who compiled the Diatessaron, which of course is a kind of a mix of all four Gospels uh, of the of the canon. And um, people still do this, right? There's one called The Life of Christ in Stereo and uh, various other ones that are Gospel harmonies, not in the sense of putting the text of the gospel side by side, which is a very handy tool. Throckmorton and various others have done that, but uh, rather a continuous narrative, trying to put every bit of the gospels in, uh, and uh, even including the doublets usually, uh, but trying to come up with one continuous, all-inclusive narrative. Uh, Stefan Hermann Huller, uh, whose work is just really, as you probably know, very, very fascinating and innovative, he suggests that our Gospels are derived from a kind of mega-Gospel uh, like the Diatessaron. Uh, that, that puts, if that were true, that would put the whole source-critical question in a, in a new light. But So that's just really a bunch of random thoughts rather than any kind of respectable answer, but at least those might be pointers and directions you, you might want to follow up, especially the Cushot thing, that's C-O-U-C-H-O-U-D, Paul Lewis Cushot, Lewis, L-O-U-I-S. Okay, um, Paul, who signs himself probably lesser than the biblical, so Paul the less, not Paul the great. See, I used to raise goats, and I am left to wonder why the beef with goats compared with sheep. In my experience, they're more or less similar in how they behave, although goats are better escape artists. Uh, both will tend to follow you everywhere, get underfoot, and make a god-awful mess and racket. So what is the significance of dividing uh quote, between the sheep and goats, unquote, or are the origins of this lost to history? Or did they just never eat a goat and thus never knew them? Uh, I don't know, but my guess is that it's just uh, like that scene you're referring to in Matthew 25. I, I, I get the impression it's just a herdsman 
who uh, wants to count how many he's got and so segregates the two herds uh, to for business purposes, basically. It, it's not really a value judgment, uh, even in the parable, right? It says uh, that the uh, it's like uh, a shepherd separating the sheep from the goats, but in uh, in the scenario envisioned here, when the Son of Man comes, he's going to sift out uh, the the nations uh, one from another to see who accepted the gospel or not. And uh, so I don't think he's saying, oh yeah, you know those they're like goats because like goats they're evil. I, I don't think there's any implication of that. It's just. Uh, sorting them out and uh, they do that for mundane reasons well in in the same way it's just like uh, the other Matthean parable where uh, the the parable of the uh, the dragnet right the net captures all sorts of sea life from minnows to great Cthulhu and uh, you you gotta separate them out when you bring the net in some of the stuff you're not even gonna keep I, I love that commercial I I'm not even sure what it's for now. Is it Gorton's or something where it's got these uh, foreign fishermen examining their catch and they, they're looking into the bucket which the at the bottom of which the camera is. So we don't see what's in there, but we see their faces looking into it. And uh, they're kind of looking puzzled. And one of them says, fish? Uh, yeah, good enough. And so they toss it in and you don't know what the heck is in those fish sticks you're heating up, right? Uh, I love that. That's kind of what's going on here. You know, well, is this really what we want to uh, save and sell or should we throw it back? Well, you know, that's not any kind of fiendish insidious thing, but it's a common mundane case of somebody having to sort out the catch. Well, Matthew says that's what it's going to be like when the angels decide, okay, uh, roll up your sleeves, time to uh, separate the sinners from the righteous and I, I think it's just a case of that rather than not liking the goats um, now you, you'd have to ask the question well no how about this uh, yeah the the uh, thing with the scapegoat in Leviticus uh, what is it 16 I forget uh, where uh, two goats are sacrificed one offered to Yahweh uh, and the other driven out to the desert where the demons lived uh, so he can there be eaten by Azazel. Oh, fascinating stuff there. Uh, it's it's interesting. It's not a sheep offered to Yahweh and a goat to Azazel, right? No, goats to both. So apparently they're they're okay in biblical reckoning, I guess. Uh, but I tell you, goats sure make an eerie sound when they're screaming, right? Uh, maybe... Uh, the uh, writer of the parable in Matthew 25 was thinking of how they sound and figured, yeah, I can imagine the damned in hell sounding like that. Uh, much uh, much worse than Goat Boy on Saturday Night Live. Okay, Donovan Ravenhall Willett from Mobile, Alabama. I was wondering if you could address some of the common or more interesting apologetics given for God hardening Pharaoh's heart. It always came across to me as God just showing off what he could do and increasing the suffering of the Egyptian people. Well, yeah, I think that is true, and uh, it typically the uh, suffering of the people is negligible to the writer. Uh, it's really Pharaoh's fault, uh, and if he'd have uh, 
listen to reason. He could have spared his people all this. Uh, but, of course, it wasn't really uh, Pharaoh's fault either, was it? Because God hardened his heart. Why does he do that? Well, I think he says pretty clearly, uh, God says to Moses earlier in the story that he's just going to make a punching bag out of Pharaoh, and unfortunately, all those poor Egyptians who had no say in the matter, right? Uh, he's going to make it clear that uh, he is the number one God, not the gods of Egypt who are in no position to give Pharaoh any help. Uh, he's going to set him up to knock him down over and over again to make his point. I, I think that is the idea, if I'm correctly interpreting what he says to Moses. So, you know, we could get this done a lot easier and quicker, but that's not good enough. Uh, as a friend of mine used to say, well, no, what, I guess he's quoting uh, Monty Python's The Life of Brian. Crucifixion's too, too good for him. All right, and that, that's kind of God's view. He wants to really make uh, a laughing stock, a byword of uh, Pharaoh by really beating the heck out of him. And uh, so that, I think, is the, the idea there. Because later on, you hear all this stuff about how he's doing this for his name's sake, that is to spread his reputation uh, so, that they w so that they will know that I am Hester. I mean, I am Yahweh, the Lord, yeah. Um, but uh, the the apologetics for it, uh, that I don't know. I mean, how you can defend this, I guess ultimately it's just the old Calvinist thing. Uh, well, God can do whatever the heck he wants. If he wants to do it, it's automatically good, which, of course, is just absolutely destructive to any belief in objective morality. If it's God's whim, well, then nothing is inherently right or wrong. But I'm guessing that's what it is. I, I don't see how you can uh, really get out of it. I mean, if you said that it was really up to Pharaoh to uh, listen to Moses' uh, ultimatums, and he wouldn't do it. You could kind of blame him, though you'd still, it's like the uh, slaughter of the infants in Bethlehem. You know, whose fault is that? Why punish all these innocent people? You'd still have to ask that. But the fact that it says God made it impossible for the poor jerk uh, to repent and listen to reason, uh, you, you got your work cut out for you. And I'm not really sure what else they say other than the old divine command theory that uh, God's, uh, what's his name? Um, uh, Meredith Klein, an Old Testament scholar at Gordon-Conwell when I was there, he had this idea that what you were seeing in the slaughter of the Canaanites, for instance, was a kind of proleptic eschatology, that uh, why you complain, and ultimately it would come to this anyway, since these people were all uh, idolaters and perverts, you still have a problem there, right? Uh, was it really their fault and so on this is the way they were raised and every one of them including the babies uh, it's you, you can never win on that one it's just absurd and uh, i mean you see what you're doing if you even try to defend that uh you're like a spin doctor for a tyrant yeah i know it looks a little awful but really uh il duce had a good reason for it. You, you're sharing the blame you, you can't degrade yourself by defending something like that. Okay. Uh, thanks, Donovan. And now uh, one from uh, Jordan Smith. Uh, he says, uh, What's your opinion of the doctrine of soul sleep? Do you think it's biblical? 
uh, you, you know what he means there, right? Uh, Seventh-day Adventists and some others believe in this, that there is no inherent immortality to the human soul. Uh, if soul even is, if soul is other than a hypostatization of, uh, of an abstraction, that, uh, that the nefesh, uh, that, uh, you know, the man became a living being, a living soul. Nefesh is just the life force, what Aristotle would have called the form of the body. And, uh, that once you disintegrate, uh, that's it. Uh, you're not holding the form anymore. You don't have the animating nefesh. Uh, but God is... Now, I know that, that kind of runs afoul of the idea of Sheol, where you're not going to heaven or hell, but you still exist in some kind of shadow, ghostly form. But you do have absolute mortalism in the Old Testament, too. Like Adam is told, you, you're gonna, you came from the dust, you're going to return to the dust, that's it. Uh, Psalm 90 takes that view. And uh, soul sleep kind of implies that, too, but there is a kind of back door out of it. Because as God created you to begin with, uh, as the Quran says, uh, he made you from a drop of water that is semen to begin with. Why is it any more of a challenge for him to remake you with the resurrection out of dust? Yeah, yeah, okay. So they, they kind of uh, came up with a way of sneaking in immortality. and uh, But does that mean, you, the whole argument there, like in the Quran, is such to say that you don't have a soul that survives the death of the body. No, it's just that on resurrection morning, you're going to be recreated. Uh, and that's why the Quran says uh, you won't have noticed any uh, any uh, lapse. You won't have thought that, uh, oh, a lot of time has gone by. Uh, finally, being dead is over. No, you're going to, you'll just uh, seem to be waking up as if nothing had happened. Like, well, what, where am I? Uh, which makes a lot of sense. Well, does the New Testament say this, or just the Bible say this. So let's let's go on and jump the gun here. Let's read the rest of the question. Uh, I know many, many references in the New Testament um, refer to the dead being asleep, but so many groups out there, the Catholic Church being one of them, are adamantly opposed to the notion that the dead are unconscious and that they wait for Christ to return to be resurrected in brand new and brand spanking new spiritual bodies, and they accept that life after death exists immediately upon the death of the body. Uh, I think it's more sound that the people that wrote the epistles believe that the dead are not conscious after the body dies, much in the same way that the ancient Hebrews accepted the notion uh, in their form of the underworld as Sheol. Uh, scripture like First uh, Corinthians fifteen twelve through eighteen and First Corinthians fifteen twenty one through twenty two. It seems to me are very apparent that all hope was hinged on the future resurrection and not life after death, or else what's the point of saying that if Christ be not raised, your faith is in vain, and ye are yet in your sins, then they also which are fallen asleep in Christ are perished. First uh, Corinthians fifteen seventeen through 18. If soul sleep is what the epistles teach, isn't that doctrinal notion just another nail in the coffin for the four Gospels being a historical narrative as well? I mean, Christ ascended to paradise, Luke twenty four forty three, uh, in the Gospel of Luke, but in the other writings, he was simply dead, Revelation one eighteen. He that 
I'm he that liveth but was dead. Uh, and that he went and preached unto the spirits in prison, First Peter 3.19. What's your take on all of this? Well, I think you do have different uh, opinions in the New Testament uh, about the resurrection, for instance. Uh, Luke seems to, or at least whoever wrote Acts, seems to envision a resurrection of the righteous and the wicked. Paul is made to confess faith in that, I think, in his uh, trial before the, the Sanhedrin. and uh, But somewhere in there, yeah, the resurrection of the righteous and the wicked to face the music. The book of Revelation certainly has that. Um but what about the uh oh okay let me just pursue that uh first corinthians 15 seems to envision only the resurrection of the righteous resurrection seems to be the same thing as salvation uh, that oh yeah they're going to rise but each in his own order christ the first fruits you know the beginning of the process and then those who belong to him and then comes the end uh wait a minute where's the ones that don't belong to him where's the wicked apparently they're just left in the grave so 1st Corinthians uh, 15 yeah that's it Um, uh, 1st Thessalonians I don't want you to be uh, despairing as those who have no hope well that and then he says don't worry Christ is going to come back and uh, and the, the dead in Christ will rise into the air and in that mode will always be with the Lord well, that's interesting. The resurrection seems to be a spiritual rising, uh, not coming back to the earth. And, of course, only the righteous are in, uh, in line for that. Uh, so there, there looks to be some kind of heavenly existence at the resurrection, but not a return to physical uh, existence, though it, it, admittedly very little is said in detail, so who knows. Uh, are there well so the epistles speak of those before the resurrection who are asleep those who sleep that certainly seems you'd never use that uh, phrase unless you thought they were just plain dead but don't worry they're going to be alive again one day uh, you, you wouldn't, I mean, you might say their bodies are asleep, but I don't think you'd even say that, right? That seems to me to demand uh, what the soul sleep people say, that uh, that they're, uh, they're just gone, but they'll be found again. Uh, they'll be recreated. There are, though, um, New Testament passages that do speak of some sort of incorporeal survival in heaven. However, this is usually said of martyrs in the book of Revelation, for instance. Who is it who who we find in heaven uh, with uh, with God saying, how long, O Lord, their, their uh, souls are under the Ark of the Covenant in heaven? Well, that means they were sacrificed. These are the souls of the martyrs. It explicitly says that. Don't worry, it won't be long. We just have to have the full quota of martyrs up here. Uh, that doesn't mean that uh, that everybody else is in heaven, all other believers who have died. Uh, martyrs, the, those martyred by the beast, are explicitly said to have uh, an advantageous privileged position as of the resurrection when christ returns 
the righteous, uh, the martyrs of the beast will be raised and will reign with Christ for a thousand years, but only after that will the books be opened and non-martyred Christians and the sinners, only then will they be raised and face the music. Now, where were they? There's no hint in Revelation that the, the souls of the righteous were with God unless they were martyrs. Uh, in uh, Philippians and Second Corinthians, there are statements implying that uh, Paul figured that when he was shortly to be martyred, that really didn't phase him because to be absent here would be to be present with uh, Christ in heaven. Now, is that uh, the way it's supposed to be for all of the righteous or all of the Christians? doesn't say that, right? The point is he's facing martyrdom. And uh, the Quran again, makes this explicit, that uh, those who die in battle for Allah, martyrs, they will immediately go to heaven spiritually, but they and everybody else will physically be raised at the last judgment. I think that uh, is what we're glimpsing though without a great deal of elaboration, in Revelation, Philippians, and 2 Corinthians. Um, there is uh, the notion of the righteous immediately going to paradise, whether they are uh, martyrs or not, in Luke, because that's where uh, the Lazarus, the poor man, in chapter 16, I think it is, winds up when he starves to death one day. Uh, he's in the bosom that is in the welcoming embrace of Father Abraham. Uh, and uh, and the rich man who ignored him, he's frying in hell, in Hades, literally, in the fire, uh, the same day, right? So there we have an immediate experience of damnation. Whether Luke thought that, that either Lazarus or his opposite number would one day rise from the dead, well, that's not really implied in the passage, right? Okay, the wheel is turned. Uh, rich guy, uh, Dives, as they call him, just means the rich man. Uh, you had your good things in life. Uh, poor Lazarus didn't. Well, now it's his turn, and it's your turn to suffer. That seems... Uh, like, you know, that's it. Uh, and uh, resurrection from the dead is mentioned, but not as an eschatological thing, right? The the, the uh, rich man between screams says, well, it, tell you what, Father Abraham, at least could you send Lazarus back to warn my brothers who were just as bad as I was? Uh, if, maybe if he warns them, they'll repent. Okay, it's too late for me. But it's like Marley in uh, in A Christmas Carol, right? Too late for him, but uh, he is uh, sent back to warn Scrooge, don't end up like me, because of the way you're going, you will. So that's what the rich man wants Abraham to do, send Lazarus like Marley. He says, no, nah, you're kidding yourself. Even if a guy came back from the dead, that wouldn't shake him, because they've already got the warnings of Scripture. And if they're not heeding that, one might say, if they're committed to not heeding that, nothing is going to change their mind, which is quite a wise statement, right? Forget your apologetics for the resurrection. And... Uh, so it looks like they have uh, reached their final destinations.
like those movies, you know, Final Destination, Final Destination 2, 3, 4, how final could it have been? Uh, but anyhow, uh, now uh, also in Luke, the crucifixion account, right, the, uh, the uh, one thief crucified with Jesus tells the other one mocking Jesus to shut the heck up. He says, this guy's innocent. Uh, we don't. De we deserve what's happening to us. He doesn't. Why don't you give him a break? And uh, he, then he says to Jesus, who's, after all, being crucified as the would-be king of the Jews, he says to Jesus, uh, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom, that is, when you're enthroned. And uh, Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. There, there's multiple layers to this. I think things have been added to that. Originally, um, remember me when you come into your kingdom, that was mockery. In fact, the, the same line appears in Diodorus Siculus, where this, this guy is uh, mocking a slave who claims to be uh, of royal descent. And uh, I, I think that in the original, Luke had both of them mocking him, just as they do in Mark and Matthew, and specified what the mockery was. Oh, your highness, uh, don't forget about me when uh, when you uh, come into your kingly power, right? But uh, then somebody has decided to make this a sincere statement. The guy apparently believes Jesus will come into his kingdom. That seems a little hard to imagine, but he's made into a Christian believer, basically. And uh, Jesus says, oh, my kingdom, okay, you, I'll remember you. You'll be with me. I'm taking you with me when I go to my kingdom of paradise. That's not what the, what the kingdom meant originally. It meant your royal, uh, like the James and John, who want to be on Jesus left and right, left and right when he comes into his kingdom, when he comes into his kingly authority, when he takes the throne. But somebody has thought of kingdom of heaven. You mean that place called heaven? And so we've got this thing has grown in the telling. But uh, but the point uh, at least is that in one of the levels of it, one of the layers of it, Jesus does uh, speak of simply dying and going to the place where the righteous dead go. Paradise in Jewish thought was the third heaven and the place where the righteous went. And that's presumably where Lazarus was with righteous Abraham. Does that envision a resurrection even for Jesus? I don't think so. Uh, so you got all kinds of pointers in different directions. But can you find the soul sleep doctrine in the New Testament? Yeah, I think you can. In other words, I think there are several passages that, that presuppose that. But there is no one New Testament doctrine, at least uh, if there were, it'd be mighty surprising if you could come up with one framework that would uh, fit all these pieces into it. Uh, by the way, in uh, in First uh, Peter 3.19, I don't think that was originally a reference to Jesus. I think uh, Edgar Goodspeed was right that Eh, or maybe he got it from somebody else, I forget. But uh, when it says, uh, you know, he's put to death in the flesh and made alive in the spirit, in which also he went to preach to the spirits in prison, there's a scribal error there. Uh, it, uh, um, uh, in which also is en ho kai in Greek. Originally, it was a reference to Enoch. 
uh, he was put to Jesus was put to death in the body but made alive in the spirit Enoch went to preach to the spirits in prison who had been disobedient at the time of Noah okay bingo that makes perfect sense uh, and uh, reference to first Enoch but anyhow there's my rambling commentary on that one High Flux 7 says I've always wondered about Genesis chapter 42 when the ten sons of Jacob make their appeal to Joseph in verse 16 I'm sorry make their appeal to to Joseph verse 16 clearly has Joseph instructing them to send just one from the brothers uh, wait a minute uh, let me, let me start this again. When the ten sons of Jacob make their appeal to Joseph in verse 16, you know, he's now a big wig in Egypt and they don't know who he is. Verse 16 clearly has Joseph instructing to send just one of the brothers back to Canaan to fetch Benjamin in order to prove they are indeed in Egypt to purchase grain and not spies. After three days of lockup for all ten brothers, this suddenly turns into sending all the brothers back except one, Simeon. Any idea what gives? Uh, Yeah, just an idea, but there are other even well equally blatant discrepancies in the uh, Joseph story that must come like the who who was it that uh, sold him as a slave the Ishmaelites or the Midianites etc who was it that tried to rescue him Judah or uh, or uh, Reuben and so on it, it it's because we have uh, bits and pieces of two different versions that the editor tried to harmonize. He combined them much as the Genesis editor had combined the J and P versions of the flood, for instance, spliced them together. And you can tell he did that because not only is it redundant, it's contradictory. And I, I think this is best explained that way, that in one version they did send... Um, 11, what is it, uh, send nine of these guys back. In one, they sent one back, and it's obviously that's a pretty easy mistake to make, and I think that's what we have here, the vestiges of two different versions. Like you got Potiphar in one and Potipharah in, in another version, and uh, playing slightly different roles and so forth. So I think it's a result of the hybrid character of the very long Joseph story. Um, let's see. Um, greetings from Walid in Newcastle, England, across the pond. Why that it be in our weekly, bi-weekly fix of the Bible Geek or the Human Bible, can you please establish a new trend in which you give us parts of the New Testament which are in your learned opinion of Gnostic or adoptionistic origins. For instance, that part in Mark where it says, Today I have begotten you is obviously adoptionistic, whereas the bit with the born of a woman is in answer to the Marcionites, and so on. Uh, yeah, I, well, let me just say right now, I'm sure I'll return to this, I, those are classic cases. There's docetist material, at least it kind of looks that way, where in the Gospel of John, Jesus does not need to eat or drink, despite the fact that it says he's hungry, but he turns down the food. And uh, there's the uh, uh, the possibility of when he just 
moves through the crowd about to throw him off the ledge in Luke 4, that he's drifting through the uh, crowd in a non-corporeal way. And uh, there's a couple of other uh, instances that imply perhaps docetism. Um, adoptionism, oh yeah, yeah, Mark, uh, Mark's baptism story is clearly adoptionist. There's no nativity story. And uh, today I have begotten you, well, that comes from uh, Psalm 2, uh, which was an enthronement liturgy. That was the day on which the new king of Judah was adopted as God's son. And that's where it comes from. And to point out that it's part of the royal enthronement rhetoric is not to make it other than adoptionistic. Oh, that's all it was. What are you talking about? I mean, that underlines the point that, yes, like the old kings, he is adopted in an honorary sense or what as as God's son from that point on. Uh, and uh, just like in the shepherd of Hermas, for instance. And, and the fact that uh, the preposition, the spirit comes down and enters into him in Mark, and that gets hastily changed by both Matthew and Luke to rest it upon him. Well, Mark has in view this kind of thing you have with Serinthus and all these others, that there was some sort of entity, an angel, spirit, something that uh, entered into Jesus and made him the channeler for that spirit. I don't see how you can get around that. Uh, and, uh, oh, you have different uh, views in the epistle to the Hebrews as to whether Jesus was adopted as the Son of God or was a preexistent divine being. I mean, in the same letter. Uh, and uh, so there there are differences there. Uh, and uh, and again, that, that'll come up again and again. It is very interesting to... Uh, to see why the differences, right? The fundamentalist doesn't want to admit there are differences, so his hands are full being a spin doctor trying to iron out the, the contradictions. I say the critical approach is better because it explains the contradictions. It doesn't deny them. It explains why they contradict and doesn't pretend they don't. Uh, and so you wind up understanding it instead of being baffled. Uh, the uh, second bit... Please convey my greatest gratitude to the gentleman who suggested we use the LibriVox website. He's great. I've downloaded and am listening to the one title you mentioned, which I think was uh, David Friedrich Strauss's Life of, Criti uh, Life of Jesus Critically Examined. Yeah. Uh, uh, are there any other titles you recommend? Um, I There are too many to list here. If you could go to my website robertmprice.mindvendor.com I have a higher critical reading list there where I hit a lot of the major works on different aspects of biblical studies and I think a bunch of the goodies and oldies are listed there and uh, I'm not familiar enough with LibriVox but you could use this list and see which ones are on there that is a great great tool for sure Reuven, uh, my question concerns the Hyksos, you know them, right, H-Y-K-S-O-S, and their possible connection to the tribe of Simeon. Earlier this week, fellow Bible geeks, mainly Dale, discussed the historical connection between the expulsion of the Hyksos and the Hebrews. This inspired me to look further into the Hexateuch, 
you know, the first six books, Genesis through Joshua, uh, for signs of the Hyksos. What I found especially interesting is that in Joshua 10.6, the tribe of Simeon is allotted a city by the name of Sharuhen. Uh, rather innocuous, right? Not the case. This is the city that the Hyksos royalty moved to and were ultimately defeated here. So why would this town be included in their territory? Is it possible they are the descendants, the Simeonites, or uh, descendants of the Hyksos? Uh, I gotta admit I draw a blank on this. That's one good way of explaining it. Though it seems to me these days that... Uh, Old Testament scholars don't really think the Hyksos had anything to do with the uh, the, uh, the Hebrews, and that the Hapiru probably didn't either, but I really would have to do some homework. I don't have time to do <laughs> to verify that. You may well be right. Um, let's see. Okay, oh, and more from Reuven. Uh, concerning the identity of the Amalekites, what no one seems to propose is that the Amalekites' descent from Esau or Edom is an admission that they are of the same stock as the Israelites. Is it possible, then, that the Amalekites simply represent an earlier offshoot of Canaanites with all the added horrors ascribed to them by the later Israelite writers? Amalekite being a term for any Canaanite-descended person that hadn't become an Israelite? We see, for example, in the book of Judges, chapters 6 to 8, the Amalekites and the Midianites are said to have amassed a visible army of at least 135,000 encamped against Israel. This is not feasible unless these people were living in the land of Israel. He can't very well march an army of that size out of the Sinai or northern Arabia across the Negev, the southern desert, to attack the Israelites. Similarly, the Chronicles author proclaims that the Simeonites have wiped out and supplanted an Amalekite settlement in Seir, is that how you say it, S-E-I-R, the very location where Esau, the alleged forefather of the Edomites, lived. And 500 of these Simeonites, led by Pelatiah, Neriah, uh, Rephaiah and Uziel, the sons of Ishai, uh, I-S-H-I, invaded the hill country of Seir. They killed the remaining Amalekites who had escaped, and they have lived there to this day, First Chronicles 4, 42 through 43. Interesting also that the text there has the sons of Ishi, which could be a reference to Ishbael, son and heir to King Saul, finishing the job, perhaps? Uh, uh, well, uh, at least, I think, on the basis of uh, what's come out in the last years, that, yeah, the Israelites, the Amalekites, the Edomites, the Moabites, the Ammonites, uh, the Kryptonites, and all these guys were were really ethnically the same. They, their languages were cognate, their religions were parallel in uh, so many details that uh, basically they were all the same group. And that uh, that the becoming Israelites, you mentioned that, yeah, that by the time we are reading about these guys in the Bible, the uh, the people of the land, the Amharets, the Canaanites, 
were simply the Israelites and I guess their cousin neighbors in the days that they practiced the traditional mythical polytheistic religion and that the Israelites as portrayed in those stories are really people that accept the monotheistic Judaism uh, that, that came about much later, uh, the Deuteronomic reform, which may be a lot later than we thought anyway, but even if it isn't, even if that was in the, uh, the 7th century BCE, um, it's at that point that they begin looking at anybody who sticks by the old religion as a bunch of pagans and Canaanites, and that there's a very thin, easily erasable line between those people. They weren't literally foreigners. They were foreign to the emergent proto-Orthodox Judaism. And, uh, and so I think it's highly likely that the phenomena you point out in the text with the Amalekites uh, reflects that. Um, good, good observation, as always. You're very sharp-eyed, Reuven. Uh, Reuven, I know you're a big Star Trek fan, so I especially uh, share my uh, sorrow with you today on the, the death of the great Captain Spock. Um, okay, here's another couple of quick ones. Uh, um, concerning the apparent absurdity of the names of Rachel and Leah, why would Laban name his daughters Little Lamb and Cow? Was he immensely <laughs> cruel? Or is it like the woman that named her kid I'm a Hog? Uh, where, where, what's the number of Dyfus? Uh, uh, was he immensely cruel, or is this symbolism? Could the tribes descended from the little lamb have offered sa- lamb sacrifices, and the tribes descended from the cow have offered cow sacrifices? Or is, or is there some other meaning to the names? Yeah, those those names, as uh, Ignatz Goldseer pointed out long ago, refer to cloud formations in all probability uh, that the weather was very important to the ancient nomads and this uh, the lamb obviously the fleeciness and all that but the cow as well the rain having to uh, do with the milk and all that so they're, they're probably names of uh, of perhaps divinized personified weather phenomena so th- that'd be my guess yeah, so uh, Oh, let's see. And finally, Commander Scotty from the Ann Arbor Galaxy. Let's see. He teaches in Dearborn. I hope he's watching his back. Uh, Okay. In her many books, Margaret Barker talks about the Second Temple and its priests as being corrupt, and that it was the reform of Josiah and doing away with the, quote, religion, unquote, of the first Solomonic Temple that introduced this corruption. Could you please elaborate on this? In what way specifically did Josiah's reform corrupt the religion of the first temple? Uh, well, uh, Josiah, of course, is is pictured as being king in the time of the first temple. That's uh, so. Th- that's a little bit different uh, than than what your question presupposes. But at any rate. Uh, what would be the evidence that the priesthood was corrupted? Um, I wonder if there's not some reference here to the 
Hasmonean priests who displaced the traditional Zadokite priestly line. Uh, because then we've got some data to look at. Uh, the, there, there does seem to be corruption among the Hasmonean priests and priest kings, like John Hyrcanus. Uh, we we know about uh, about more of the intrigues and the buying of the the priestly office and so on. I don't think we're told enough about the Zadokite priests in the wake of the Deuteronomic reform, but uh, there would be a fundamental dishonesty in that the winners rewrote the history after the and in light of the Deuteronomic reform. Uh, reform is not really the right word, let's say the Deuteronomic program. Uh, what they did was, of course, to, as you're just saying in connection with Reuven's question, what they did was to radically alter the uh, the Israelite religion from polytheism to monolatry to monotheism, and uh, we see that emerge in the Bible, in Jeremiah, and in the second Isaiah. And uh, so polytheists were now assumed to have been pagan Canaanites and Israelites whom they seduced into a paganism they knew better than to embrace. Oh yeah, Moses had already taught monotheism. What what's that to say? Then how come there were polytheists? There's even some Bible stories that says, Oh well, well that that's because they got uh, seduced into it by those damn pagans. Uh, well, that and then in light of it, they uh, censored the the scriptures to some degree. Luckily for us, leaving a bunch of loose ends so we can figure out what happened. But this kind of propaganda, they fused Yahweh and his father El Elyon together as a single deity and so on. This 1984-like rewriting of history could be construed as the, uh, the, uh, as a kind of corruption. Uh, just in the same way we blame the uh, Catholic Church for, uh, and Eusebius and all these guys for fabricating a history of Christianity, which we're only now being able to uh, unravel a bit. I just reread uh, her book, uh, The Gate of Heaven, an amazingly fascinating book about the temple. And uh, I don't recall any more about priestly corruption in there than this idea of... uh, changing stuff and pretending nothing had changed again just like the ministry of truth and the obama i mean in the in 1984 uh, and uh again i'll i'll be rereading some more of her books boy margaret barker what a genius uh, and i'll see if i come up with anything but nothing else comes to mind still you know what i've said strikes me as a major instance of religious deception and uh, you, you wouldn't have had to say that, right, if they'd have said, you know, we have now, like through some prophet, like the second Isaiah, uh, because the prophet has made it clear, we realize there really only ever was one God, though admittedly people didn't know this previously, but things have become clear. Now, if that's uh, if they'd have said that, there'd have been less of a problem, right? That would have been completely honest. But this rewriting history, that seems dubious, right? It's a 
step in the wrong direction right out of the uh, right out of the gate. Okay, I guess that's it for Bible Geek Matters today. I'll, I hope this one gets posted soon. I know there's uh, the guys that do this. John and Surjan uh, have a lot to do, and uh, I'm very, very lucky that they do this at all. But like me, you know, they got other stuff that comes up in their schedule, but pretty soon I'm sure you'll hear this and the other recent ones I've done. Thanks for uh, listening, and I want to thank those of you that have responded to my pathetic appeals for uh, money and to keep the lights on here. Uh, and, uh, and uh, I uh, regret that that's necessary, uh, but uh, you're very kind. And uh, I'll, uh, I'll welcome even uh, even more, I'm ashamed to say, but I have to say. But again, let me emphasize, there's no admission fee for the Bible Geek. If you don't feel inclined to, to make donations or you can't, don't think about it again. That's not why I do this, right? It's just loads of fun to do. It's a labor of love. If you can, help, great. But if you can't, don't worry about it. Uh, and uh, I sure don't. So thank you very much for your interest in the show. And I'll see you soon for another exciting episode. The Bible Geek was recorded by Robert M. Price and produced by John Felix and Sergin Yovanovich. Theme song by John Morris. Visit us at robertmprice.mindvendor.com for more info on Robert's projects, purchase Bible Geek merchandise, and click the ever-important Donate button. Send your questions to criticus at aol.com and be sure to rate and review The Bible Geek on iTunes. Thanks for listening to The Bible Geek. I'm Torn Atkinson. 